Hey folks, and welcome to episode 188 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our ongoing series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. In this talk, he finishes out his discussion of Genesis chapter 26, which sets up many of the themes that we'll see in the life of Jacob to come. We hope you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We've come now to the last paragraph here, and I want us to walk through it. In Genesis 26, 23 to 35. And I'll read that. This is after he's been in Gerar for a while and his wife is now protected and he's had conflict over the wells and he's finally dug a well called Open Spaces and he's been there for a while and then the last paragraph begins in verse 23. He went up from there to Beersheba. Now Yahweh was seen by him on that night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will make your seed many for the sake of Abraham, my servant. And he built a slaughter site there, that's the word altar, and called out on the name of Yahweh. He spread his tent there, and Yitzhak's servants excavated a well there. They began digging. While they were digging, and Abimelech came to him from Gerar along with Ahuzat, his aide, and Phicol, the commander of his army, or Picol, the commander of his army. Yitzhak said to them, Why have you come to me? For you hate me and have sent me away from you. And they said, We have seen, yes, seen, that Yahweh has been with you. And we say, Pray let there be an oath curse between us, between us and you. We want to cut a covenant with you if ever you should deal badly with us, etc. That would be the terms of the covenant. Just as we have not harmed you, and just as we have only dealt well with you, and have sent you away in peace, for you are now blessed by Yahweh. He made them a drinking feast, and they ate and drank. Early in the morning they swore to one another, and Yitzchak sent them off, and they went from him in peace. And it was on that same day that Yitzchak's servants came and told him about the well that they had been digging. And they said to him, We have found water. And so he called it Shiva, swearing, or seven. Therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Shiva until this day. That's where this story ends. The next two verses in this chapter belong with the next large pericope. And the chapter division is really infelicitous here. This business about Esau and his wives brackets all the stuff about Jacob deceiving Isaac. So, back to verse 23. We go to Beersheba. We looked at that the last couple of times. That's a well that Abraham dug. This is a land that flows with milk and honey and beer. These wells are full of beer, and that's why they're called seven beers. No, actually the word beer means well, and Shiva means both oath and seven because an oath is a pledge of everything you have. Everything you have is your seven. God's seven is the whole creation and the property and possessions of the patriarchs are sevens. 
And so when you read a list of how God blesses somebody or what they possess or what they own, you'll find it's almost always a list of seven things. I'm looking real quickly to see if I can find a couple of them. We've already had one in this passage, a list of seven things being a total of a man's possessions. In chapter 26, 13, the man became great, went on, went on becoming greater until he was exceedingly great, herds of sheep, herds of oxen, and a large retinue of servants. There's seven rhythms, there's seven beats in that line, and then the climax, and the Philistines envied him. But we've also got other passages in here, and I'm not going to try to find them. Remember that Abraham sends seven lambs to Abimelech when he gets the well in the first place, and that that really anticipates Isaac, who is the lamb who goes into the Philistine territory later on. Isaac is represented by the ram who substitutes for him as the sacrifice of Isaac. You find the ram in a bush. A burning bush has God in it. This earlier bush has the ram in it. So we've come to Beersheba, which is on the boundary between the promised land and this Philistine Egyptian territory. So the patriarchs almost never get to live in the land. There'd be strangers and sojourners and constantly being pushed out of it by famines and things. We're on the border of it here in Beersheba. And we left Beersheba and now we've come back to it. That's an inclusio. We left it when there was a famine. Now we've come back. Verse 24. Yahweh was seen by him on that night. That means that literally Isaac saw God. Now he didn't see the face of God. Nobody has. But he saw the Shekinah glory. And I think we have to understand that the cloud and the glory of God and some type of personage appeared on these occasions. It happened at night. When things happen at night, we should really always kind of think Passover. One way or another, a transition or a change is happening in the night time. There's been difficulty up to now. Now there's a change that takes place during the night and a new day comes on the other side of it. So it's not always at night that these things happen. But when they are at night, think of it that way. You've got some type of a transition from difficulty to blessing or something. That's what happens here. I mean, God appears to them and says, from now on, things are going to be different. I mean, you've moved to a nice place anyway before you came back to Beersheba, but now I'm going to make things really different. And it's at night that this happens. He didn't need to be told that, you know. He could have said, Yahweh was seen by him. But on the very night he got to Beersheba, God says, change takes place here at night. The next phrases are something of a polystrophy. I'm the God of Abraham. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. I will bless you. And I'll make you seed many because of Abraham, my servant. So Abraham, again, is central in this passage. Everything is done for Abraham's sake. Abraham is faithful, and so God's going to bless his son and keep the promises he made to Abraham. And he says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. That's the same thing he said to Ishmael. And this also calls back the earlier Beersheba incident in Genesis 21. The first thing that happens in Genesis 21 is Ishmael is cast out, but God says he's going to be with him. Verse 20 of Genesis 21, God was with the lad. God is with Ishmael, Emmanuel. And then two sentences later, the earlier Abimelech and Phicol come to Abraham and said, God is with you. 
And we see that. Well, now it happens again. Only the promise is not to Ishmael now, but now it's reiterated to Isaac. I am with you. And the Philistines will see that I am with you, and they'll want the benefit of that. So they're going to come. Isaac responds by establishing worship here. He built an altar, a place to offer sacrifice, and a place to gather, and called out the name of Yahweh. That means they instituted gathered worship there. The people gathered there and they offered prayer there. doesn't mean he said, Yahweh, and called out the name. It's his expression that means they set up worship. So when God says something to you, you respond by prayer and praise. And that's what our worship is like, isn't it? It's a dialogue. God speaks to us, we talk back to him. We hear the sermon and we respond by coming to the table and having more sacrificial, sacramental type of worship. Call and response. In response to worship. Worship is established in Beersheba. It's now like the tabernacle is going to be later on, or like the temple is going to be later on. Isaac has been through his Sinai experience. He's been through his wilderness experience. Now he's in the land. He sets up worship there in the shadow way. Then the second half of verse 25 tells us that he spread his tent there. And I don't know if I've reminded you of this so far in his course, but remember these tents, that these guys had, they're not wigwams. You want to know what these tents were like? Look at the tabernacle. They were like mobile homes. They had walls, solid walls. If you want to set up a tent, you lay down a bunch of sockets on the ground, and then you take some boards and you stick them into these sockets, and these boards have rings on them, and you run a pole through all the rings here to hold all the boards together, and you run another pole through rings at the top to hold it together up here, and you attach it to other boards going across at a 90 degree angle, and you get all this stuff attached as you set it up, and you've got boards all the way around making a room. You can make as many rooms as you want. Okay, then you hang curtains to keep the draft out, and you stick a pole up in the middle and put a big old watertight carpet of skins over the top of the whole thing, but that's actually the tent. And depending on how big it is, you can have three or four little rooms in there with these walls and curtains hanging, and then over it all, something to keep the rain out. That's how the tabernacle was built. Of course, the tabernacle, everything was gold. The boards had gold over them. I don't think Abraham's tent or Isaac's tent was like that, but people lived in the same tent and in the same place for years. These people are not nomads. They didn't wander from place to place. They go to Beersheba here, and 30, 40 years later, that's where they still are. So, yeah, it was a tent, <laughs> but it was a big tent, and it was a nice tent from everything we know. And you always see in movies and TV shows this implication that the patriarchs were like Bedouins. They wandered from place to place and packing up this kind of smaller tent that's just all curtains and nothing else, and going here and going there and following their sheep around. That's really not the picture that we have here. I'm sure that when they pastured their sheep, they went out and dwelt in small tents and kept their sheep, but the headquarters back here at Beersheba was a nice house. It was semi-permanent. You could pack it up and move it, just like the tabernacle, because it wasn't built of stone and it wasn't excavated out and planted there permanently, but it wasn't a teepee either. So I think we have to think the way the tabernacle was built when we think about these tents that they had. It was a nice thing. This is a rich guy. 
God has prospered him a hundredfold. He's got hundreds and hundreds of servants in his sheikdom. He's not in some little tent. Well, then we read that while they're excavating this well, we talked a little bit about that last week, because there's a connection between digging up water and digging into the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, which the well of water represents, and God bringing the Gentiles to you. And while we're being more and more faithful, God will, in time, cause the hearts of the wicked to change. And that's just pictured here for us. While they're digging the well, these three men come. Earlier in Abraham's day, Abimelech came with Phicol, and these are all titles, of course, they're not names. This time we come with three people, and I think that we see in this a little reflection of the Trinity in human life, and that's probably, again, a picture of the whole world coming to Isaac. Abimelech means my father is the king. Father is in that name. Ahuzat, well, Phicol is the commander of the army. He's the Lord of hosts. That would link with the second person of the Trinity. And Ahuzat, his aide or friend, is his counselor. Friend means counselor. It's a technical term in the Bible. Abraham, the friend of God. A friend is the counselor that you tell him what you're planning to do and ask his advice. That's what God did with Abraham, you remember, when he was about to destroy Sodom. That's the word here, if your Bible may say, Ahuzat, his friend. Literally, that's what it says in Hebrew. But the king's friend is a very high position. It's his chief counselor. David, in David's day, I forget what he called so-and-so, his king's friend as his chief counselor. So that's who this is. So you see, you've got the father, the commander, and the counselor all coming. And he could have said Abimelech came with some of his top dogs, but it's more than that. Isaac leads them in worship and festivity, so they become like his three mighty men. And previously we've talked about the three mighty men theme in the Bible. Who else had three mighty men? Where does that theme show up again? David's three mighty men. Jesus' three mighty men. Peter, James, and John. They are set apart. Daniel's three mighty men. Job's three mighty men who turn against him because of their envy. He's down, so there's their chance to take over. This is a theme in the Bible, because human society is like a house. So you've got a chief cornerstone, and you've got three other corners. The word for army commander in Hebrew is cornerstone. So when you read about the cornerstones of the people, that means the other three army commanders under Moses, the chief cornerstone, or David, the chief cornerstone. Whatever, that's the model. So we got three guys coming here, and they're all kind of bonding into Isaac. Isaac would be then, in terms of the deep construct here, the undercurrent melodies that are going on through this whole Bible. They actually become his three mighty men, and of course they are. One of them is the wisest man in Gerar, Ahuzah. Commander of the army of Gizar, Phicol. The king of Gerar. These are the three mightiest men, and they come... And they want Isaac to kind of tell them and show them what to do. You lead us, Isaac. You can be the chief corner. So I don't want to let that go by without calling attention to it. Now Isaac says to them when they come initially, Why have you come to me? For you hate me and have sent me away from you. Hate, now in the Bible, doesn't mean that they emotionally hated him, but it means rejection. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I rejected. It doesn't exclude the emotional content, but it's more of an objective term. 
That's why we can both hate and love the enemy. Do I not hate all them that hate thee, O Lord? Yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred. They become my enemies. Then Jesus says, love your enemies. Well, we think of love and hate as opposites, but they're not quite. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. What does hate mean? Hate your enemies because they're God's enemies. That means reject them. You have an attitude of rejection, and at the same time, you try to reach out. And you can have both. It's not impossible to have both attitudes. So basically, you have rejected me and sent me away from you. And they reply, we have seen. Seeing we have seen. That's this duplication verb here. That's the idea of sight. Sight is so important in Genesis. We judge. Seeing is judging. We judge. We evaluate. Yahweh has been with you. It's really Yahweh they're coming to here. Isaac is one thing, but they see that Yahweh is with them, and they want that, see. I don't know how many times I hear people say, or I read in the commentaries, well, these are just some type of common grace covenant thing. They just want the goodies. Well, that's not the way this is written. They want the covenant God to be their God. How well these people understood it, I don't know. They may have gone back home and kept some of their household gods around for minor affairs and had Yahweh as the best one. We don't know how this worked out in practice and how perfectly everybody understood stuff, but it's clear enough they want Yahweh to be their God. They want a covenant with Yahweh's servant. So this is all very positive here, and it's really Yahweh they're coming to. Then we have two things here. We have an oath and a covenant. And the covenant is, if you should deal badly with us, may you be ripped in half and devoured by the birds. And if we should deal badly with you, may we be ripped in half and devoured by the birds. Now, it's not written out in your text because you understand that. If your Bible says, you should not, that's not an accurate translation, that's a paraphrase. The word starts with if, and it's just a covenant formula. If you should deal falsely with us, etc. That's the way a covenant starts. And the covenant always has this curse. And the curse is to be ripped in half and devoured by the birds and the beasts. And the full form would be, if you deal falsely with us, may you be ripped in half and devoured by the birds and the beasts. And if we deal falsely with you, may we be ripped in half and devoured by the birds and the beasts. So you cut a covenant, and the way you cut a covenant is to take an animal and cut it in half, signifying what's going to happen to you if you don't keep the covenant. Circumcision is a covenant. In circumcision, you cut the male body in half. That's a big piece and a small piece, but you're cutting him in half. Well, cut in half is the way you make the covenant. So... God makes a covenant between heaven and earth. What does he do in Genesis chapter 1? He cuts them in half and puts a firmament in between them. And that's the covenant with heaven and earth. Now, of course, there's blood involved and all the rest of it because of sin, but that's what's happening. That's what it means to cut a covenant. And we'll have words like make a covenant or reestablish a covenant. But when the word cut is used, as it is here, it means... You cut an animal in half, and that's a symbol of what will happen to us if we break the covenant. Every sacrifice in the sacrificial system is cut in half, except for Passover. 
You sacrifice a bird, you have to pull the head off. And all the rest of them are chopped up in at least two pieces. That's you're cutting a covenant, or recutting a covenant. And it sets up this covenant relationship. God says, may I be cut in half if I break the covenant with you? We say, may we be cut in half if we break the covenant with you? That's our relationship with God. An aspect or dimension of it. And that's what the two of them are doing here. So that's what this phrase means. And that's the first thing that they do. And then they say, just as we have not harmed you and just as we have only dealt well with you and sent you away in peace. And you're now blessed by Yahweh. They say they didn't really intend to harm Isaac, they just kind of misunderstood. Well, we do know that Abimelech, when he found out that Isaac and Rebekah were married, he said anybody who touches this man or his wife is to be put to death. So there is grounds for this claim. And yes, it's true that the shepherds of Gerar contested with Isaac over wells, but that wasn't Abimelech, that was guys out in the field there. And they didn't have telephones and telegraph or internet to call up Abimelech and say, hey, you guys are giving me trouble out here. It could be that Abimelech was barely aware that this was going on because it was miles away. Or even if he did, it may not have been that big a deal in his mind. He says, we did not intend to harm you. Or we could have, I mean... You bring your sheep them in here because of the famine, we could have taken everything you own. We could have taken your wife and killed you. But we haven't ever dealt with you that way. We didn't deal with Abraham that way. Yes, my father took Sarah into the harem, but he didn't touch her and he gave her back as soon as he found out what was going on. And we gave Abraham many blessings. We haven't really mistreated you. We may not have understood everything. The Bible distinguishes between high-handed sins and sins of inadvertency or sins that we don't really intend to commit or that we're led astray in committing. And I think we have to understand that's something similar here. Their statement is fairly honest. We didn't harm you. We did deal well with you. Even if we fought over one well, we let you go and dig another one. And we sent you away in peace. Abimelech comes and says, go away from us because you're more mighty in number than we and actually, it's only after he departs from Abimelech that he has trouble with the wells. So Abimelech could be absolutely right. While you were with me, I treated you well. I sent you away in peace. These shepherds of Gerar are not under my control. Maybe that's true. Maybe they weren't under Abimelech's control. Whatever is the case, they want to say, look, it may have felt like we hated you and rejected you, but we weren't really intending that, and we see that you're blessed by Yahweh, and we really want to have a covenant with you. And so, Isaac does that. Have rejection or hate is replaced by communion, which is love. He made them a drinking feast. And they ate and drank. And we know what they drank. It was Diet Coke, the Calvinistic drink. Early in the morning, they swore an oath to one another. And Isaac sent them off, and they went from him in peace. Earlier, when Abraham, other Abimelech, made an oath and a covenant, it says they cut a covenant and then he gave the ewe lambs to Abimelech and they swore an oath. So there seems to be some difference here. They're not quite the same thing. It's not spelled out. But the covenant is made and also on top of that some type of an oath or pledge to one another. 
to live in peace. And Isaac sent them off, and they went from him in peace. Now, verse 32 brings us then to the digging of the well again. It was on that same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they'd been digging. Well, that's the well they started digging back in verse 25. They'd been digging it the whole time. And they said to him, we found water. Or this has to be related. The digging of the well is going on the whole time the Gentiles are coming and making covenant and leaving. Start to dig the well, Gentiles come, make covenant, Gentiles leave, finish digging the well. It's just no accident. But what does it mean? <laughs> it's not exactly clear. There's no verse that says digging a well symbolizes X. You just have to think about it and allow it to change the way you look at the world. Since we don't even dig wells anymore, not in this kind of a culture, you really just have to let it soak in. And I don't know what it all means. And it's here. I want you to be aware of it. Somehow or other, digging the well parallels the conversion of the Gentiles. The outflow of the water of the well parallels the Gentiles going home in peace. That much I think one can see. Digging up the well, digging up the ground to find water has something to do with working with the unbelievers until the Spirit comes and you find water inside of them and they convert. And sending them away in peace might have some parallel to the water flowing out from the well. Those are the best reflections I can do. We're supposed to ask for the Spirit, which is parallel to digging the well, and that's parallel to praying for the conversion of unbelievers. Well, reflect on that. The Bible is given to change our minds so we think about the world a different way. None of us grow up thinking about it the right way. Somehow or other, if we could have all these thoughts and these conceptions in our minds, we'd have a better outlook on existence. So just let it go into you that while they were digging the well, the Gentiles came and were converted. Yeah, some parallel. I think the general parallel is that as the church is faithful, digging into the Bible, digging into God through prayer, as the church is faithful, God sends into the hearts of the wicked to be at peace with us. When our ways please the Lord, He makes our enemies to be at peace with us. And when the church is faithful, then God brings people. It doesn't mean He brings them the next day. But that's the principle. And I think that's really what's the ultimate thing that we would carry away from this. Then finally it says he called that well Sheba, which means swearing seven. Therefore the name of the city is called the well of Sheba, Beersheba, until this day. This is the same well, the same name Abraham had given it. That's what we've seen right along. Isaac is digging back up what Abraham had. And I've got down here the preliminary form of the kingdom that came before Jesus is confirmed as all nations are now disciples. And you may think we're done with Genesis 26, but we're not. And I know that we won't be taking this much time on every chapter. I was kind of surprised that this chapter turned out to have so much stuff in it. And I could have just skipped it, but I thought, well, sometimes it's useful to camp and talk about these things because then your ability to understand a lot of the rest of the Bible is enhanced if you get these things in your belly. So we just decided to spend some time here and... We have a little bit more time to do because this chapter has a certain centrality in the story of Genesis. It's not readily apparent, but when you see it, 
it helps to understand, again, how God deals with things. I have some concluding thoughts that come out of this. One is, I've got marked down here, livestock. I have to make a correction. I had said earlier that when Lot's herdsmen fought with Abraham's herdsmen, they were struggling over cows. And then when we get to Genesis 26, the shepherds of Gerar are fighting with Isaac over sheep. And I said, you know, we're moving from cows to sheep, from bulls to sheep, from fathers to sons, from Elohim to Yahweh, all of which is true, but it's really not true in Genesis 13. The word for livestock means both sheep and oxen, and they were struggling over water for all of it. Now, there's no emphasis on ox there. There is, however, if you start thinking about who's the ox and who's the sheep and what's going on, there is a possible slight association of Abraham with oxen in chapter 18, 7, and 8, and that's where when Yahweh and his two angels show up to visit Abraham, Abraham kills an ox and serves it to him. He doesn't kill a sheep. We wouldn't have to be told any of that, but attention is called to killing a cow or a calf. Isaac has a slight association with flock members. A flock member is either sheep or goat. No Passover can be either a sheep or a goat. It's just a flock member. Chapter 21, verse 8, the seven new lambs that are sent away to Gerar anticipate Isaac going to Gerar from Abraham. And then the contest over flock members, sheep and goats, in this chapter we just read. But there is a powerful association of Jacob with flock members. In chapter 29, 2-9, chapter 30, 31-42, chapter 31, 4-43, those are all the stories about Jacob maintaining the flocks, the flocks of Laban, and getting the speckled and spotted and striped and paisley and goats and sheep. There's nothing about cows in this passage. Everything is sheep which stands in something of a contrast because formerly it talks about Abraham having herds of oxen and flocks of sheep and goats. Isaac has herds of oxen and flocks of sheep and goats. And occasionally you see that again, but when you get to the Jacob story, everything is sheep and goats. Nothing about cows and bulls. No aurochs, no oxen. And I think that is establishing that Israel is God's flock and that symbolism is being nailed in in the Jacob story. Of course, we haven't gotten there yet, but this was a convenient place to say something about it because I've already introduced it. The second motif I would like to pull together a little bit more is that I mentioned last week or the week before that when God comes and gives assurances that he's going to bless Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, it comes in the context of their having separated from somebody. You only have a separation and then a blessing comes. In Genesis 13, you have Lot and Abraham and they're kind of contesting over the land. And there's a quarrel between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and those of Lot. And Abram says to Lot, so maybe we should go to the right or to the left and you pick a place. And so Lot goes to the plain of the Jordan, pitching his tent near Sodom, which is very wicked. And then in verse 14, Yahweh says to Abraham, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look where you are. I'm going to give all this to your seed. Big land promise comes immediately after separation from someone. What kind of separation? That's a good question. I mean, Lot is not an evil man. Not separation from evil, but there's some kind of separation that takes place. 
And then there's blessing that comes afterwards. Chapter 21, it's right after Ishmael is separated from Abraham that Abimelech and Phico come and they make this covenant. And Abraham is assured that he will be able to live in Beersheba and he even plants a tree there, one that's going to grow. A tamarisk tree is a slow-growing tree. It doesn't pop up in one year. It's a big old oak. And he plants it there. It's going to be there a long time. And he plants this long-living, slow-growing tree and he calls on Yahweh God of ages. The long-term God. The whole land deal comes right after a separation. In chapter 26, we just saw this. Isaac separates from Abimelech. They contest over these wells. He finally gets separated. And then the blessing comes. In chapter 31 to 32, Jacob leaves Laban. Laban comes chasing after him. After that separation, God makes peace between Jacob and Laban and then God wrestles with Jacob and gives him the blessing. Now, why? What is going on here is from Genesis 1. On the third day, land and sea are separated and immediately after that, the land brings forth fruitfulness. And that's really what's behind all of this. That when a separation takes place, fruitfulness follows. It's like pruning. And Jesus says something similar when he says branches that don't produce will be pruned out so that the good branches can produce more. Well, each of these stories is different. Lot is striving with Abraham because Lot is jealous of Abraham. He separates Ishmael and Hagar wanted to stay with Abraham. And they're good people, they're believers. But God wants them to separate just for practical reasons so that Isaac can grow up and there'll be no question about who he is. Abimelech and Isaac, there's more ambiguity there. Laban is trying to oppress Jacob. What you see in every one of these separations, though, is it's not the righteous who separate, but the wicked who drive them out. And I think what it tells us is that true separation leads to fruitfulness, the false separation leads to spiritual incest and sterility, and that's what you see with a lot of fundamentalists and extreme Lutherans and extreme Calvinists and extreme everything. You wind up with these little incestuous groups that are not fruitful because of the way they separate. And the difference seems to be that if you look at all of these stories, Abraham didn't say, well, you people aren't believers, so I'm going to separate from you. He stayed living there until they pushed him out. It says Lot's herdsmen picked fights with Abraham's herdsmen and provoked the separation. God made Ishmael leave. Abimelech pushed Isaac out. Laban pushed Jacob out. So the right kind of separation is when they push you out, not when you say, oh, well, you're not pure. Why, you don't believe in all five of the five points, so we're going to separate from you so we can have a pure church. That is exactly the wrong kind of separation. Or you know what some of the fundamentalists do? We separate from anybody who isn't separated enough. Double degree separation. Phil Bob Jones' question, do you believe in double degree separation? What do you mean? Well, we not only separate from Catholics, we separate from Billy Graham because he's friends with Catholics. And we'll separate with you if you like Billy Graham. <laughs> so death spreads to all men. The uncleanness is spreading from one person to another. Well, no, actually, we're not supposed to be the ones that do the big separating here. We see being driven out. We see God provoking a conflict. You have something like this in the book of Acts, a separation that is fruitfulness afterwards. Well, of course, you've got the separation of the church from Israel. The more separated the church gets from the apostasy, the more fruitful she is. But I'm thinking about Paul and Barnabas. 
There's a little conflict there. It wasn't any big deal. And it wasn't necessarily sin on either side. But when they separated, each one was more fruitful. So there's kind of a theme here, and it's interesting to notice in Genesis chapter 1 that God separates things and then they're fruitful. And that seems to be one of the ways God does stuff. See, my interest here is if we can get more familiar with how God does stuff. Children grow up in your home and then they separate. And they form new marriages and then they're fruitful. Wish they wouldn't be if you kept them there. And that's a perversion when people want to keep their kids and never let them leave. Then you have essentially psychological incest. And there's no fruitfulness. Nobody's fruitful. The parents don't move on into the post-child life, stage of life, where they can be fruitful in new and different ways. And the children don't go out and become fruitful on their own. But God has made the world of where there are all different kinds of separations that take place. Separation from sin, from sinful people. Separation from brothers that are perfectly friendly with one another, but they need to have their own space. All of these forms of separation lead to fruitfulness. And we see that in Genesis over and over again, and it's something that God is trying to establish in our minds so that we're friendly to it, so that you can be happy. If your child goes off and gets married and moves away, you can say, yeah, this is a good thing because this is how God acts and not feel total emptiness syndrome, feel all terribly bad about it. It happens in lots of different ways, and it's a positive thing is how history moves forward. So I thought that was a reflection It comes out of this story. We'll have it again, but since we're spending so much time camped here, might as well discuss a lot of these themes here, and then when we get on into Jacob, we'll be able just to refer back to them. Now this says number four. How'd that happen? I should say number three. This is the last one we'll do. We have a movement here. There are three wells in this passage, and we didn't talk about that a whole lot at the time, but now I want to talk about it a bit. After he leaves Abimelech and goes out into the wilderness around Gerar, where Abimelech doesn't have much control, the general area, not the city, the shepherds of Gerar quarrel with the shepherds of Yitzhak, saying the water is ours, verse 20, so he names that well bickering, or strife. They dug another well, and he calls his name Satan, Sitna, accusation. And then they come to a third well, which is open spaces. Now we saw that on third time's charm, third day, third well, third hour, third month theme here. But by giving them these names, by the Holy Spirit telling us this stuff, we are being enjoined to reflect on this progression of events. The first well is just strife. There's general conflict. But the second one is much worse because there's a false accusation. Sitna shows up only one other time in the Old Testament, and that's in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Sitanai is the same as the word Satan. got those same consonants in it. It's the same word, spelled the same way. There are four different S's in Hebrew. <laughs> well, this has the same S. Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. I want to read this to you just because it will really fill out what is happening here. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, at the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They wrote a sitna. A sitna is really a written accusation. What happened here? This wasn't just, hey, let's fight over this well, but there was a series of false charges lodged. This is where it goes. Probably written charges. 
or something brought up before the court. Something much more intense. And we can compare this event here, this false charge theme, with the fact that Abimelech brings a false charge against Isaac in the first story in this chapter. He says, hey, one of the people might have Clintonized your wife and it would have been your fault. It's your fault. Now, I think this is a pattern we ought to be aware of. When we're like Isaac and we're meek and we don't fight with people, which is what we're supposed to do. You might think, well, they'll be placated. But actually, our adversaries often become more enraged, moving from opposing us to making false accusations against us. But the Bible tells us who can bring any charge against God's elect. And Isaac, we don't know how many sleepless nights he had, but the way the text is, eventually he just let these charges roll off of him and he moved on. Okay, bring your false charges against him. He's vindicated at the end. Several years later, he's vindicated. But initially, remember, this stink is around him. People not only fought with him, but they brought false charges around him. I think that most of us have seen this kind of thing go on. I certainly saw it go on in Texas when we were there. We had men who caused trouble and made difficulty, and when that didn't work, then they had a whole bunch of false charges to bring against some of the elders and pastor in the church. And when are you vindicated? Well, the man who was primarily charged against was vindicated into the pattern of his life was such that he was well thought of in the eyes of everybody in the church. And when he died a few years later, people only spoke well of him. So this is something that happens in life. There's an escalation. And we're going to stop here, but you'll notice in your notes that this word Satan here is a bell that rings that tells us think about the Garden of Eden. And of course, we've got wells of water here and fruitfulness and all the rest. So I'm going to continue on with some of these themes. And next time we'll look at the Garden of Eden motif. Satan attacks in this chapter. First he attacks the bride. Then he attacks the garden and tries to take it over. And then he's defeated. So definitely we ought to be thinking about Genesis 3 as we read this chapter. And since Isaac is the son, he's the seed of the woman. He's the one who's being attacked. So we want to get that motif in our minds as well. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.